We are going to start uh, a short series today uh, in the book of Habakkuk, all right? And so in my introduction here, I just want to answer two quick questions concerning the book of Habakkuk. Number one, where is it, right? And why do I care or why should I care? All right, so if you take out your Bibles and you start looking for the book of Habakkuk, you can go ahead and do that. Um, I'll try to explain a little bit about where it is. Um, if you have the ESV Slimline Bible like I do, it's page 785. Um, but other than that, you guys are on your own. Um, where is the book of Habakkuk? The book of Habakkuk can be found near the end of the Old Testament among a group of 12 books known as the Minor Prophets. Now, they're not called the Minor Prophets because these guys were 18 years or younger when they wrote them, um, or because their message was inferior or insignificant compared to the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They're classified as Minor Prophets simply because of the length of their message. So where books like Jeremiah, Jeremiah has 52 chapters, uh, Ezekiel has 48 chapters. Habakkuk has just three. All right, so it's going to be a short series. All right. Um, in fact, the book of Isaiah has more chapters. Isaiah has 66 chapters than the book of Habakkuk has verses. Habakkuk only has 56 verses. All right, so it's a smaller book. So the book of Habakkuk can be found near the end of the Old Testament between the books of Nahum and Zephaniah. All right, so if you got your Bible, you know, hopefully you're almost there. But let me answer the second question here, and probably the more important one. Why do I care, or why should I care? Why should this small little book in the Old Testament mean anything to us today? <clears throat> it is possible that you may only know that there is a book called Habakkuk because when you were growing up in Awana or whatever kids club, you know, you had to memorize the books of the Old Testament, and so you memorized that Old Testament song, and so you, had to, you knew it was in there somewhere. Or maybe you you know you know the, the book of Habakkuk because you do your yearly reading Bible reading and you know you have to check that off every year. But if you're anything like me, you might be hesitant to spend time in this area of the Bible because, to be honest, number one, the New Testament is just cooler and like more relevant. I feel to me today, and two, the Old Testament prophets, to be honest, often did crazy things. Uh, that seemed to make no sense, and they talked about obscure places with hard-to-pronounce names and talked about obscure people with even more unpronounceable and hard-to-pronounce names and often used lots of confusing language and descriptions, right? Does anybody else feel that way when you come to the prophets? All right, so why should I care? Why should we care about the book of Habakkuk? Well, have you ever looked around at the world and community and society you live in and say, something isn't right? This isn't the way that things should be. Then you and Habakkuk have something in common. Have you ever prayed and prayed and prayed about a difficult situation or a painful circumstance in your life and just feel like you have heard nothing back from God? Like he's not even there. Like he's not even acting. Well, you and Habakkuk can relate. Have you ever been confused when trying to reconcile what you know about God? That God is love. That God is just. That God is holy. He's righteous and he hates evil. Have you ever struggled to reconcile that 
with what you experience and feel in this life. The injustice, the evil, the corruption, the violence, the pain, and the suffering. Well, then you and Habakkuk are in the same boat. And so I think we can all use Habakkuk's uh, um, story in our lives to help us. In the book of Habakkuk, we will see this prophet of God struggle with these questions. Seeing men in Israel flagrantly violate God's law and distort justice without fear of divine intervention. Habakkuk battles an inner personal struggle. God is good, but there is just so much evil. God loves me, but life is so hard and unjust and unfair. All right, so let's dive into the book of Habakkuk and see how Habakkuk's struggle and our struggle is, can be resolved. All right, so if you found, hopefully you found the book of Habakkuk, um, Habakkuk chapter 1. Today we're going to be covering the first 11 verses, so I'm going to go ahead and read them for you here. Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, but if you have a different translation, please follow along. Habakkuk 1.1 says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet, prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They are all coming for violence, all their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and they take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come here and look into your word, Lord. So we ask today that your Holy Spirit moves within us. Lord, help us to see our lives through Habakkuk's eyes. Lord, to understand Habakkuk's story, what's going on in his life, his struggle. Lord, and see how it applies to us here today. God, we thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be right with you. And Lord, we pray that these words here today might be honoring and glorifying to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so the book of Habakkuk. Here we go. All right, let me begin quickly by giving some background uh, so we can kind of get our bearings about where we are in the Old Testament story, uh, in the story of Old Testament Israel. We are in the times after King David and King Solomon. And after King Solomon died, there was kind of some strife and some struggle about who was going to run the kingdom, right? Who was going to be the next king? Who was going to be in charge? 
And so it event ended up that the kingdom ended up splitting in two. All right, you had your northern kingdom, which went by the name of Israel, and the southern kingdom, which had the capital of Jerusalem, went by the name of Judah. All right, and so these northern and southern kingdoms both went through their litany, their list of kings. All right, some good kings, some bad kings. The north, most of theirs were pretty bad. All right, the south, they had some more good than bad. All right, and so... And so God sent his prophets to these kingdoms and warned them, saying, If you follow me and follow the laws I have set up, then I will bless you as a nation and protect you and keep you in the land that I have promised to your predecessors. But if you follow other gods and the wickedness of your own hearts, I will judge you and cut you off from the land that I promised to your predecessors. And so God sent his prophets to these kingdoms because these wicked kings decided, hey, we're not going to follow God. We're going to follow after. We're going to worship the idols of the people around us. We're kings. We're going to do whatever we want. We're going to take whatever we want. So there was rampant corruption uh, for some of these guys. And so God's like, hey, I am sending my prophets, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and others. They continually called God's people to follow him. But as we know, Israel and Judah continued to follow after other gods and nations and the other, of the other nations around them. And did not follow God's laws and were corrupt and evil. And so God raised up the kingdom of Assyria. And they came in and they destroyed the northern kingdom. All right. And so there was no more northern kingdom during Habakkuk's day. And they ruled over the southern kingdom. They put heavy tax on them. Um, and so they were in charge. So during Habakkuk's time, the northern kingdom was gone, destroyed by the Assyrians, and it seemed that Judah was next. But along came King Josiah, one of the good kings, and he restored God's law in Judah. And so at the time, Judah was spared. But when King Josiah died, his son Jehoiakim quickly turned the nation back to the corrupt and idolatrous ways. And so as Habakkuk comes onto the scene, we will see in the next couple of verses that the situation looked like what the situation looked like in Jerusalem and Judah but now we have but now that we have the background let's begin by looking at verse number 1 verse number 1 simply says the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw i think i have that up here am i connected there my god oh, there it is all right <clears throat> now we don't really know much of anything about the prophet Habakkuk you know, in a lot of the other prophets, sometimes they told us a little bit about themselves, where they were from, who they were, or if it wasn't in their own book, sometimes we can find them in other books of the Bible and find out information about them. But we don't know that, we don't know anything about Habakkuk. He is mentioned nowhere else in Scripture, and he doesn't tell us who he is or where he's, what, his, what family he's from or where he's from. We simply learn that he is a prophet. There's something very unique about the book of Habakkuk, though. Unlike the other prophets who were sent to communicate God's word to God's people or to other people, other nations. Remember the, the, the story of the prophet Jonah. He was told to go to Nineveh. Um, instead of like the other prophets who God gave them words and he's like, I want you to take these to my people. Habakkuk's entire book is a conversation between the prophet and God. 
So unlike when we read how God used the prophets to communicate his message to his people in Habakkuk, we get a peek into the prayer life or a one-on-one conversation between a prophet and God. So as we look into verse 1 here, we see the word that's translated oracle. The Hebrew word here also can be translated as a burden or a weight. And this is what Habakkuk saw. Oftentimes when this word is used for the prophets, it was because the message that they had was kind of weighty. All right. Because God is sending them to a wicked and evil people saying, hey, you need to come back or judgment is coming. All right. That's a pretty heavy message. All right. We all like to bring people good news. Right. And it's, it's, it's fun to give people good news. Hey, you know, making a wedding announcement or, you know, a baby's coming or something like that. Hey, that's good news. None of us really like to give bad news, but that was mostly the job of the prophets, was bringing the bad news that if if you don't turn back to God, judgment is coming. And so there was this weighty message that they had. Habakkuk, on the other hand, saw before him a weighty matter that he takes before the Lord. He takes his burden to the Lord in the form of a complaint. Habakkuk actually goes to God and he complains twice in his book. All right, and we're going to look at that. Verse 2, we see this. Oh, I don't know why the the reference is a little bit in the middle of the verse. But verse 2 says, O Lord, how long shall we cry for help? Now, stopping there, this, this phrase, how long, indicates several things to us. First, when we read this verse, it is very reminiscent of a certain style of song, song from the book of Psalms. All right. The dialogue with which um, with God takes the form of a lament. Frequently, the psalmists use this to lament as a lament psalm as they poured out their complaints before the almighty. Look at Psalm. This is Psalm 13 verses one and two. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I counsel in my soul, take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And so in the Psalms, when, when um, a psalm is categorized as a lament psalm, it's because the psalmist is kind of pouring their heart out to God because of the suffering that they're feeling, because of the emptiness that they're feeling, because they feel like they're either abandoned or God's not listening to them. And oftentimes they cry out, how long is this going to go on? And so this psalm and many others show us that the lament was used to cry out to God, asking God to act, asking God to do something. And this is how Habakkuk pours out his heart to God in the form of a lament. In his book, he will twice complain before God, here and later in chapter 1. <clears throat> The second thing that we learn from this phrase, how long, O Lord, indicates that he has been doing so for some time. Habakkuk has been crying out to God constantly and continuously for some time, asking for help. Here we have a prophet of God, one who brings God's message to his people, claiming that he's not hearing from God. I'm not hearing anything. God, I'm not even sure you're there. I'm not even sure you're working. Why is he calling out to God for help? Well, the second half of verse 2 tells us this. 
says, How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help, or you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So in the end of verse 2 through verse 4, Habakkuk tells us, he describes the life in Judah and Jerusalem in his day. He uses six different words to describe the troublesome situation in Judah. He uses the word violence, iniquity, iniquity or injustice, wrong, destruction, strife, and contention. It's clear that times weren't good in Judah for those who follow God. And so Habakkuk continually lifting up his prayers to God, asking for help. But according to verse 2, it seems to no avail. It seems that God is not responding. Have you ever felt that way? Like you're crying out to God because of some difficult or painful situation in life. And yet you feel like your prayers are unheard. Or it seems like God is indifferent to your situation. That is how Habakkuk felt at the beginning of the book. And it's how many of God's people have felt throughout history. We've already talked about the psalmist. Talk about David crying out to God, wondering when he is going to show up. When he's going to act. This happened time and time again to many of the other prophets as well. After the destruction of Jerusalem, in the future, the Babylonians would destroy Jerusalem. And after the destruction of Jerusalem, Jerusalem was considered the place where God resided, especially in the temple. And the prophet Jeremiah writes an entire book lamenting the destruction and the troubles of God's people after Jerusalem was destroyed. It's called the Book of Lamentations. God wants us to bring our troubles, our difficulties, our painful situations to him. Jesus said, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Habakkuk identifies with you. He is here bringing his burden to God, but God seems not to hear his prayer. Or worse, God is just indifferent and chooses not to act. He chooses to do nothing. It gets worse, though, as we come to verse 4. Verse 4, he describes the law as being paralyzed. It says, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. This was God's law. He's talking about the law that God gave to Moses to give to his people so that they could follow him. So they knew what it was to obey God. And the law also spelled out that if you disobey this law, here's the punishment that needs to come with it. The people were to obey God's law. Yet now in Habakkuk's day, corruption and evil went all the way to the top so that people in charge were not honoring the law or carrying out the consequences for those who broke it. And so Habakkuk says that God's law is paralyzed. The word paralyzed here means cold or numb. Did you ever have your arm or leg or arms and legs go numb, right? I know as I get older, this seems to happen more often. 
Uh, sometimes in bed, you're laying in bed and you wake up in the middle of the night. It's like, oh man, I can't, I can't feel my arm. I can't. You know, you try to shake it awake, and sometimes it's sometimes on the really worst nights, it's like both arms. I don't know if I'm sleeping like on top of my arms or something, but I know there are, was a night or two where both arms were asleep, and it's like I can't even. You know. I, I feel helpless. It's like I almost have to say, "Wife, can you roll me over?" Sort of a thing. But you know, or or when you're sitting there watching TV or or the news or whatever it might be, and you have your legs propped up and they're crossed, and you know, you get up after an you you go to get up after an hour, and all of a sudden you're like, "Hey, my my legs, you know, I can't I can't stand up." That's what Habakkuk is saying happened to God's law. It's paralyzed. It's not functioning properly, right? When our arms are numb, they're not functioning properly. I can't use them properly. The same was true of God's law in Habakkuk's day. It was powerless to help people. He also says the wickedness is so great that there are so many wicked people that they surround the righteous. In other words, they are outnumbered. And so justice is perverted at the end of verse 4. The word perverted means to be twisted to be bent or to be distorted. So the justice that was going out was not justice at all. Basically, those wicked people that were in charge decided, okay, this is what justice is. We're not going by God's law. I'm deciding what's right. I'm deciding what justice is. And so justice wasn't going out at all. Habakkuk lived in some very dark times for the nation of Israel. It seemed as if it was similar to the time of the judges where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's what the Bible describes the time of the judges as. Habakkuk's society was in a fast downward spiral and things seemed hopeless. There was violence, there was injustice, destruction, chaos, there was evil everywhere. Worse still was that there was no one to curb it. No one to stand up for the little guy, the righteous, those who follow God. Because the corruption went all the way to the top. But worse by far for Habakkuk was the fact that he was crying out to God and God seemed to be nowhere. He seemed not to hear. He seemed not to care. So here we are, four verses into the book of Habakkuk. And can you feel the weight, excuse me, can you feel the weight pressing down on Habakkuk because of the dire times that he lived in? Maybe you're here today and life has been that way for you. It's been a constant barrage of of difficulty and pain caused by those around you, whether it's family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, or boss. Or maybe your difficulties are consequences of your own actions, your own sin that has made life painful. It's made your family life painful, life with your friends painful, life at work painful. And in those constant barrages of struggles after struggle, you cry out to God, and there seems to be no answer and no care. I think think that's probably the scariest part for, for Habakkuk. The struggle we can understand, right? The hurt, the pain, we can understand that. But when we feel God is gone or absent, that that to him and that to us is often the scariest part. But if that is you, let me say this. One, you can find companions in God's word. You can find guys like Habakkuk and others throughout God's word. There are men and women overburdened with struggle and hardship. 
So let me encourage you to go to God's word daily because it is you it is in it you will find that you are not alone. That there have been people throughout history who have had that same burden. They felt that weight, they felt that pain, they felt that struggle. God, where are you? Where are you? Are you not acting? Do you not care? And secondly, let me tell you, God is listening. How do I know that? Well, because God responds to Habakkuk in verse 5. And so let's move on to verse 5, Habakkuk 1, verse 5. Now, we don't know how long Habakkuk was praying to God to answer him. In other words, we don't know what the span of time was between verse 4. Remember, Habakkuk saying, how long? So he's been doing this for a while. We don't know what the span of time was between verse 4 and verse 5. But we do see that God doesn't leave Habakkuk's prayer in the inbox. You know, he does reply. He does answer. God begins his response in verse 5 saying this. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. Now with, with God's words in mind here, and you can see them up on the screen. Um, let's jump back to Habakkuk's complaint in verse 3. All right, what did verse 3 say? Verse 3 said this, Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? And now looking back at God's reply, God says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. Do you see a connection there? God is kind of taking Habakkuk's own words and using them in his response. Habakkuk's saying, I'm looking in front of me and all around me, and I see unchecked evil. <clears throat> and God responds essentially by saying, look up. Look up. God seeks to refocus Habakkuk's vision where he is looking, to show him that God is working in his day. You know, sometimes it's easy to get caught up with everything going on right around us that we fail to look up to see what God is doing. Quick case in point, it is easy to look around our society today and see evil everywhere, right? All you have to do is watch the news and they'll show it to you everywhere. It's easy to see the moral decay, the corruption, and it's easy for us as Christians to get caught up in bemoaning it. And sure, there is a time and a place for us as believers to address and discuss the chaos and corruption in our world. But if your first inclination after walking into church or gathering with family or at work or whatever or wherever is to despair over the state of our society, then you might have the same problem, the same struggle as Habakkuk. You are not looking up. You are not looking to God's word. One of the many truths that are obvious in God's word is that he is still at work and working in and through his people when times are toughest. Look at the life of Joseph. Look at the life of David. Look at the life of Paul and many, many others. And you'll see that it's true. So maybe like Habakkuk, we need to start looking up and realizing God is at work and his church and his people ought to be as well, no matter how bad society gets. So God uses Habakkuk's words to instruct him to look up 
And he goes on to say, For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. In Habakkuk's initial complaint, he seems uncertain if God was hearing him or acting. But here God assures him that he is at work right now concerning the evil that the prophet saw. God says, I am doing a work. Remember Habakkuk in the very beginning. How long, O Lord? Where are you? What's going on? Why don't I see you? Are you even there? Are you even working? God responds by saying him, telling him, I am doing a work. I am working. <clears throat> and yet, and we can, in the end of verse 5 and into verse 6, I think we can find also a bit of humor on God's part. Um, because he says at the end of the verse, For I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. But he goes on in verse 6 to actually tell him. So in other words, God's like, I'm doing a work. You won't believe it if I told you. But I'm going to tell you anyway. Alright? And so he goes on. In verse 6 through 11, God tells us his plan, how he is working in that time. Verse 6 says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. God says he is raising up the Chaldeans. Now, if, um, we might better know them as the Babylonians, the same ones who in the future will completely destroy Jerusalem, as mentioned before. They will take the people captive. You know, they will throw Daniel in the lion's den. The same Babylonians that throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. God says, I am raising those Babylonians up. Those Babylonians in Habakkuk's day were, not, were still yet pretty unknown, had not come onto the scene yet. Assyria was still in charge. But, God, but now God is raising up another adversary, not Assyria, but Babylon, to punish the wickedness of Israel. And look how God describes them. He describes them as being bitter, a word that connotes being savage or merciless. They were also a hasty nation, one that would move quickly to destroy. So we see here in verse 6. Then in verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Verse 7 describes them as being dreaded and fearsome, and with their own version of justice, the Babylonians were completely unprincipled and lawless, making up their own laws as they went. How ironic that lawless Judah should be confronted with a real taste of what it means to be without the law of God or any vestige of its effects in society. God is kind of repaying Judah and saying, okay, you guys want to act without laws? I'm going to bring somebody without laws to judge you. All right, verse 8 says, Their horses are swift, swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. Remember how in the beginning I said sometimes with the prophets, you know, they use a lot of words and images, and it's like sometimes difficult, to, you know. Well, Habakkuk, he's, he's no different. All right, so verse 8 uses several animal analogies to describe the Babylonian army that would arrive at Jerusalem. Their horses are swift. Uh, they're swift and fierce. This is not the, these, these descriptions are not the descriptions you want to hear about a sports team that you're about to face. 
you know, or a rival company that, you know, if you're, if you're uh, a business, it's definitely not the description you want to hear of an army coming your way. And it's amazing that God warned them centuries earlier. Look at this verse from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28-49 says this. Okay, this, so this was back when God, God gave this instruction to Moses long before this time. He said, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. God told them this would happen long ago. He said, If, if you don't follow me, all right, if you rebel against my law, if you worship the gods of the nations around you, I will punish you. I will bring in, and he describes here, basically Babylon. I will bring in a nation to destroy you. He goes on, Habakkuk, or God goes on in Habakkuk 1, verse 9. He says this, They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like the sand. Verse 9 continues, and just in case you were wondering, or Habakkuk was wondering, uh, they were not coming for a picnic, or to tell you, hey, this is, you, have, you guys have a very nice city, uh, or how much they admired their land. Verse 9 tells us they all come for violence. Again, we could, we could jump back into um, Habakkuk's initial complaint. He says, I look around Judah and I see violence everywhere. So here God, again, repaying Judah for what they had done themselves. They all come for violence. They are coming for you, and they are going to snatch you up as captives. I mean, this, this stuff kind of sounds a bit like out of a horror movie. You know, you know it's, it's, it should be... I'm sure it was horrifying for Habakkuk to hear this, and we will talk in, the, in more chapters about Habakkuk's response to this. But imagine the fear and dread that this would have left in the heart of Habakkuk. All right, verse 10 continues to describe the Babylonians. It says, At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and they take it. God says, Nothing is going to stop these Babylonians. They will trample over every city and army in their way. And actually, history tells us that this is true. The Babylonians rebelled against the Assyrians. Remember, the Assyrians were the in charge, and it's, Assyria's capital was Nineveh, which is interesting because um, we know quite a, I mean, there's quite a bit about Nineveh even in the Bible. Remember, Jonah was sent there for a time and, and told them, hey, if you don't repent, God's going to destroy you. And it seems like there was a time in their history where they did repent when Jonah came. But then again, things got worse for Assyria, and they did not... And they went back to their ways. And actually, the very book preceding Habakkuk, the book of Nahum, all right, another minor prophet, his whole prophecy was about how God was going to destroy Nineveh, how God was going to destroy the Assyrians. And so in history, the Babylonians rose up and rebelled against the Assyrians. And they, they pushed their way. It, it, Babylon is down here. All right, well, this is going to be a backwards map. Um, all right, you're going to have to look at this map backwards. All right, Babylon is down here. All right, then you have Nineveh. Then you have um, all the way up and around. Then you have Israel. Then you have Egypt way down here. All right, so 
Babylon rose up. They conquered Nineveh. All right. The leadership in Nineveh ran. All right. They started heading west. All right. I think that's, yeah, that's west. That, that way's west. All right. They started heading west. And so the Babylonians continued after them. And like God described, how swift they were, how they continued, how they were unstoppable, beat the Assyrians again and again and again until they were north of Israel. The Egyptians came up to align with the Assyrians to try to stop Babylon. And so their history tells us of the great battle at Carchemish and that the Assyrians and the Egyptians teamed together to try to stop the Babylonians and they could not defeat the Babylonians. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, um, who was the son of the king at the time, was the general and the guy in charge of the Babylonian army and he destroyed the Egyptians and what was left of the Assyrian army and that was essentially the end of the Assyrian empire. This is what God said was the work that he was doing. This is what was coming for sinful Judah. Finally, we read in verse 11, they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose own might is their God. Verse 11 tells us that the Babylonians scoffed at all authority and power. Again, kind of a resemblance of the evil kings of Judah and how they treated God. Their God, the Babylonians' God, was their military might. These verses are a horrifying description of what was to come for Judah. It was God's answer to Habakkuk's question about what he was going to do about all the violence and justice and cruelty and corruption in Judah. All right, so God answered Habakkuk. Do you think that was the answer he was looking for? <laughs> uh, it definitely was not. And next week we will get into um, Habakkuk, how Habakkuk reacts to God's response. And let me just suffice it to say that Habakkuk is like, okay, I got a second complaint. Um, what are you doing? All right. But that's next week. All right. So let's wrap up this this morning. And it's kind of, I know, it's kind of a weird way, weird place to cut off. It's like, oh, man, all this horrible stuff is coming. Well, it's like, it's like a to be continued, right? It's like a second part next week. All right. But let me wrap it up um, this way. Uh, God is always listening. And always working. He might not answer precisely when we want him to answer. He might not always act precisely when we want him to act or how we expect him to act, as we'll find out from Habakkuk in the future. But he is always, always, always listening. And he is always working in our situations and our circumstances especially when things look extremely difficult. So what we need to do is continue to pray. As God's people, we need to continue to pray, to pray for our society, to pray for those around us, to continue to be a light to the world, because the darker the world gets, the brighter a light looks. All right? So continue to pray, continue to seek him, and look up and see the wonder and be astounded because he is a great God who loves us and is working all things out for the good of those who love him.
So look up and see what God is doing. And look forward to what God will do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.